Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. This is a podcast about finding the humanity behind the horror. And this midnight I will tell you the tale of the skull in the library. Old Patty Cannon is dead and gone. Can't you hear the devil dragging her along? That's an old nursery rhyme that was common in Sussex County, Delaware over a century ago, but it has faded from memory now. The same may be said to some degree for its subject, Patty Cannon. Although she was one of the most notorious women of the early 19th century and may well have been one of the first female serial killers in the United States, the gruesome and horrific tale of her life and crimes is not as well known as one would expect. Perhaps that is understandable. We often sweep the most unsavory aspects of our history under the rug, hoping they will eventually be forgotten. Despite the fact that the Seaford Historical Society's museum, located in the town I was born in, has an exhibit about her and the fact that I was raised in Georgetown, which is where Patty Cannon's violent life met a suitably violent end. I had never heard of Patty Cannon until about a year ago. In all the lessons about Delaware and Sussex County history I had throughout grade school, she was never mentioned. It was only when I happened to be talking with my mother about writing ghost stories that she said I should tell the tale of Patty Cannon, who was buried near the jail in Georgetown, a place I had driven past hundreds of times in my youth. So, I began to do research on Patty Cannon, and what I discovered was a dark corner of Delaware and American history I had never been aware of before. But that's why it needs to be remembered. Much of Patty Cannon's early life is shrouded in mystery, and even nearly 200 years after her death, so much of who she was remains a tantalizing question mark. No letters she wrote during her lifetime have survived, but given that she made her considerable fortune illegally, Perhaps this is not surprising. She and the others involved in her hellish gang covered their tracks well. It was only when she was an old woman that she was finally arrested, and even that came about because of a fortunate accident. The primary sources we have 
are mostly newspaper articles quoting witnesses, as well as her indictment, which is preserved in the Delaware Public Archives. There are numerous secondary sources that were written in the decades following her death purporting to tell the whole story. But already in them, the truth is becoming mixed with legend. The legend of Patty Cannon has only continued to grow. Two books have done heroic work in separating the truth of Patty Cannon from the myth that has sprung up around her. In 1998, Hal Roth published The Monster's Handsome Face, Patty Cannon in Fiction and Fact, a book which has a plain black cover imprinted with the white image of her skull. I had often seen it on bookstore shelves as I was growing up, but I had never picked it up because the image frightened me. Michael Morgan's 2015 book, Delmarva's Patty Cannon, The Devil on the Nanticoke, also does a fantastic job of helping the reader understand the historical context of the times in which Patty committed her atrocities. I recommend both books to anyone who wishes to get a fuller account of this history than I have time for here. Patty Cannon was born sometime between 1759 and 1769. Some historians believe she may have immigrated to the United States from Canada, but we cannot know for sure. The first thing that is certain about Patty is that in 1790, she married a farmer named Jesse Cannon, and they settled near a town that was then known as Johnson's Crossroads, named for the tavern run by Joe Johnson. This community was on the borders of Sussex County, Delaware, and Maryland's Caroline and Dorchester counties, a mix of jurisdictions that Patty, her husband Jesse Cannon, Joe Johnson, and their gang would use to great advantage in the decades to come. It was incredibly easy for them to slip between one state and another, especially then, using the dense forests and the Nanticoke River to escape detection. We know that Patty and Jesse Cannon had at least one daughter whose name has been lost to history. This daughter eventually married Joe Johnson and happily entered the family business, sharing her mother's love of sadism. Patty Cannon herself 
was described by those who knew her as a heavy woman who possessed enormous physical strength, often disguising herself as a man while committing her crimes. She had black eyes with long, lustrous black hair, loved dancing and music, and was regarded as an engaging and witty hostess to those who happened to stop by the tavern at Johnson's Crossroads. Many of the men, carrying large sums of dollars and gold, who had a few drinks with Patty Cannon, never left the tavern alive. A woman named June Truitt, interviewed by Hal Roth for his book The Monster's Handsome Face, related a chilling anecdote that has been passed down by the old-timers of Sussex County, Delaware. A man from Federalsburg was going to Seaford one day with some meat to sell to a butcher. On his way, he stopped at the tavern, and Patty said to him, On your way back, stop again. I guess she thought he'd have some money with him then. Coming back, he went all the way around on another route. He was so scared of her. Patty Cannon was indeed a person to be feared. She was the undisputed leader of the Cannon-Johnson gang for decades. And the terrible business they were primarily engaged in was kidnapping both free and enslaved black people and selling them south an underground railroad in reverse. In an age when you could buy an acre of land for one dollar, a young and healthy black man could be sold south for three hundred dollars. In this way, Patty Cannon and her gang made many thousands of dollars while causing unimaginable human misery, striking fear into the hearts of black men, women, and children throughout Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania as far as the city of Philadelphia. Michael Morgan writes in his book, Delmarva's Patty Cannon, the Devil on the Nanticoke. Inviting targets could be abducted and transported to Patty Cannon's house, which was on the border between Delaware and Maryland. The second story of Patty's house contained two rooms that were not connected. Each of these rooms formed a cell that was accessible by a separate staircase. The unique arrangement of these two rooms made them ideal for holding kidnap victims. Those around Patty were a loose connection of malcontents who came and went as they were arrested, killed, or moved on to other dubious ventures. Joe Johnson, an experienced kidnapper, was physically intimidating, six foot tall, mean, and fearless. Johnson maintained a tavern situated a short distance from Patty's house. With easy access to the Nanticoke River, the victims collected at Patty's house could be added to those at the tavern and shipped down the river to southern parts 
where they could be sold for handsome profits. Held in attics and basements for weeks at a time, chained, brutalized, and nearly starved, these kidnapped black women, men, and children would then be marched in leg irons through miles of dense forest to reach the river. Whenever someone would cry out in pain or begin to slow down with exhaustion, Patty and Joe Johnson were known to viciously whip their victims into submission. Patty's daughter, married to Joe Johnson, would often accompany them, and she was overheard to have said that it did me good to see him beat the boys. She was truly her mother's daughter. It became known throughout the local community and far beyond what the Cannon Johnson gang were doing but for many years they evaded capture. Patty Cannon learned early that dead men and dead women and dead children tell no tales. And after all, most of her victims were black. There were many locals who were perfectly willing to allow Patty's work to continue. However, there were some that tried to stop it. An abolitionist named Jesse Torrey, who investigated the kidnappings, said the members of this nefarious gang were like, quote, beasts of prey extending their ravages, generally attended with bloodshed and sometimes murder, and spreading terror and consternation amongst both free men and slaves throughout the sandy regions from the western to the eastern shores. Finally, in July 1821, Joe Johnson was arrested for kidnapping. This marked the first time the law was able to touch Patty Cannon's gang, although she herself was not charged. The police procured a warrant to search Johnson's tavern for three kidnapped black men. They found the three they were seeking, along with ten others. An article in Maryland's Eastern Gazette related the story, also including the names and ages of the thirteen black men and children who were found in captivity at Joe Johnson's tavern for the purpose of being illegally sold south. 1. Samuel Carlyle, aged about 55. 2 and 3. Noker and Isaac Griffith. The first, aged about nine, and the other, about four. Four, Lowell Thorpe, aged twenty-three years. Five and six, Jacob and Spencer Francis, the first aged twenty and the other nineteen years are brothers, free-born. Seven, 
Jacob Everson, aged 17 years, freeborn. 8. George Williams, aged 19 years, freeborn. 9. John Todd, aged 11 years, freeborn. 10. James Morris, aged 16, freeborn. 11. George Morgan, aged 15, freeborn. 12. John Dominic, aged about 10 years. 13. Henry Ingram, aged about 13 years. These persons are now in Georgetown where their friends may make application for them. This is only one example of a group of black people whom Patty Cannon and her gang were planning to sell south. If successful, these 13 people would have been sold for almost $4,000 in 19th century money. There are countless other black men, women, and children successfully sold south by Patty's gang over the decades in batches just like this one, whose names and lives are now unknown and lost to time. Joe Johnson was convicted of his kidnapping charges and sentenced to 39 lashes from a whip in the public pillory and then to have the soft parts of his ears cut off. As was customary in the law of Delaware at the time, the lashes were given to him and as many as 2,000 spectators came to watch, as they did every time a public whipping occurred. The soft parts of Joe Johnson's ears were not cut off. However, that aspect of his sentence was commuted by the governor. This close call with the law did not stop Joe Johnson Patty, her husband, Jesse Cannon, and the other members of the gang from continuing their atrocious work. Five years later, around 1826, Patty's husband, Jesse Cannon, died. After this, Patty Cannon seems to have slowed down. She was getting older, no longer strong enough to subdue a man by herself as she had once been able to do. Over her many years of crimes, Patty had amassed a great deal of money. But, in her last few years, she began to visit the homes of wealthy Maryland and Delaware families, telling fortunes for supplemental income. For all intents and purposes, with all the evil things she had done in her lifetime, it looked like Patty Cannon was going to get away with it, all of it in the end.
likely to die peacefully in her bed without ever facing justice. However, old Patty Cannon happened to lease her land to a tenant farmer, an action which would at last prove her undoing on April 1st, 1829, finally unmasking her true monstrous face to the entire world. An April 1829 article in the Delaware Gazette tells the harrowing tale. About ten days previous to this writing, a tenant who lives on the farm where Patty Cannon and her son-in-law, the celebrated Joseph Johnson Negro trader, lived, was plowing a field in a place where a heap of brush had been laying for years when his horse sunk in a grave. And on digging, he found a blue painted chest about three feet long and in it were found the bones of a man. The excitement produced by the discovery, as may naturally be supposed, was very great in the neighborhood, and on April 2nd, one of Johnson's gang, named Cyrus James, who has resided in Maryland, was caught in this state and brought before a justice of the peace in Seaford, and on examination said that Patty Cannon had shot the man while at supper in her house, and that he saw her engaged in carrying him in the chest and burying him, and stated, moreover, that many others had been killed, and that he could show where they had been buried. In one place, a garden, they dug and found the bones of a young child, the mother of which, he stated, was a Negro woman belonging to Patty Cannon, which child, being a mulatto, she had killed. For the reason, she supposed its father to be one of her own family. Another place, a few feet distant, was then pointed out when, upon digging a few feet, two oak boxes were found, each of which contained human bones. Those in one of them had been of a person about seven years of age, which James said he saw Patty Cannon knock in the head with a billet of wood, and the other contained those of one whom he said she considered bad property, by which it is supposed she meant that he was free. On examining the skull of the largest child, it was discovered to be broken as described by James. The fellow James was raised by Patty Cannon, having been bound to her at the age of seven years. And it is said to have done much mischief in his time for her and Johnson. This woman is now between sixty and seventy years of age, and looks more like a man than a woman, but old as she is, she is believed to be as heedless and heartless as the most abandoned wretch that lives. Patty Cannon has been lodged in the jail in Georgetown, 
James stated that he had not shown all the places where murdered bodies had been buried, and at the time of writing, our correspondent informs us the people were still digging. The neighborhood in which these terrible events occurred, the borders of Delaware and Maryland, have long been famous for Negro stealing and Negro trading, and Patty Cannon and Joe Johnson are familiar names to us, end quote. They were familiar names to them for nearly 30 years. Everyone knew what was happening, and they did nothing to stop it. It is said that the town newspaper crier called throughout the streets of Seaford, Delaware on the day the monster was at last arrested. Three o'clock and Patty Cannon's taken. Patty Cannon was indicted on four counts of murder. She killed likely dozens more than that. But those were the bones that were found. Patty was in a sweet justice, now locked in a cell of her own. A prisoner whose trial was set to be one of the highlights of the early 19th century. On May 11th, 1829, Patty Cannon was found dead in her jail cell. She was between 60 and 70 years old. The cause of her death is not recorded in the primary sources that still survive, which seems unusual for so notorious a criminal. However, one clue comes from a letter written by Senator John Clayton, who had been a part of the trial of Joe Johnson in 1822. Clayton wrote in 1837, eight years after Patty Cannon's jailhouse death, quote, This demon took arsenic and died by her own hand. End quote. The total truth of how Patty Cannon died in her cell will likely never be known. But it is known. Her corpse was buried in an unmarked grave near the Georgetown jailhouse. In 1841, 12 years after Patty Cannon died, an American Penny Dreadful was published under the title Narrative and Confessions of Lucretia P. Cannon, the Female Murderer. This work is responsible for the confusion that Lucretia was Patty Cannon's true first name. This is false. The writers likely hoped to link Patty Cannon with the historical figure of Italy's Lucrezia Borgia, who is often interpreted as a brilliant murderer. Here is how this penny dreadful begins. It has probably never fallen to the lot of man to record a list of more cruel, heart-rending, atrocious, cold-blooded, and horrible crimes and murders than have been perpetrated by the subject of this narrative. Deeds, too, which for the depravity of every human fee feeling seems to have scarcely found a parallel in the annals of crime. 
crime. And it seems doubly shocking and atrocious when we find them committed by one of the female sex. The Narrative and Confessions of Lucretia P. Cannon of 1841 includes an atrocity not mentioned in Cyril James' testimony, but has become an integral part of Patty Cannon's legend. Quote, On one occasion, one of the Negro women had a little child about five years old, sometimes subject to fits, and in these fits the child used to scream in a terrible manner. It happened to have one of these fits while in Lucretia Cannon's house. She became so enraged upon hearing its cries that she flew at the child, tearing the clothes from off the poor victim of her wrath, beating it at the same time in a dreadful manner, and, as if this was not enough to satisfy her more than brutal disposition, she caught up and held its face to a hot fire, and thus scorched the child to death in her own hands, burning its face to a cinder. She then threw it in the cave in the cellar. It could have happened. Cyril James did tell another story. That one time a black woman had given birth to a young baby, and Patty Cannon walked out of the house with the baby in her apron, and no one ever saw that baby again. The truth of Patty Cannon became further mixed up with legend with the publication of George Alfred Townsend's wildly best-selling 1884 historical novel, The Entailed Hat, or Patty Cannon's Crimes. Townsend was what we might call one of the first investigative journalists in the United States, notably covering the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and its aftermath. In writing about Patty Cannon and her atrocities, he weaved a sensational tale that is also based on interviews he conducted with locals who had known the perpetrators involved. George Alfred Townsend's The Entailed Hat remains a fascinating blend of true facts and fiction. I quote the following passages below because they may give a fleeting glimpse into Patty Cannon's character. First, we go back to her glory days, as the deadly mistress of the tavern at Johnson's Crossroads. McLean went to his portmanteau and unlocked it and took out rolls of banknotes and a buckskin bag of gold. The yellow luster seemed to flash in Patty Cannon's rich black eyes like the moon overhead upon a well. How beautiful it do shine, Connell! She said, Nothing is like it for a friend. Youth and beauty has got to go together to be strong, but by God, gold can go it alone. As he made one step to penetrate the darkness with his dazzled eyes, 
patty cannon silently thrust against his heart a huge horse pistol and pulled the trigger. A flash of fire from the sharp flint against the pan lit up the hall in an instant, and the heavy body of the guest fell backward before his chair, and over him leaned the woman a moment still as death. He did not move, but only bled at the large lips, ghastly and unprotesting, and the cold blue eyes looked as natural as life. Patty Cannon took the chair and counted the money. Townsend's novel, The Entailed Hat, also gives Patty Cannon a phantasmagoric visitation before her death in jail, reminiscent of a diabolical version of Charles Dickens' ghostly A Christmas Carol. Sleeping in her chains, there were children's eyes watching her from far-off corners, as if to say, give us the whole life we would have lived but for you. As her swollen limbs festered to the irons, There were babies' cries floating in the air that seemed to draw near her breasts as if for food, and suddenly convulsed there in screams of pain and move away with the sounds of suffocation. All night there were callers on her, and whom they were no one could tell. But the jailer's family saw her lips moving and her eyes consult the air. But suddenly a helpless something would appear and paralyze her with its little wail. Like a babeless mother or a motherless babe, and with her forehead wet with sweat of agony, she would affect to chuckle, and would whisper nothing but nick, nothing more. That night, Patty Cannon, the murderess, died in awful torments. End quote. Of course, all this is merely fiction. In reality, it is likely she felt no remorse at all and would rather die by her own hand than face justice for her heinous, racist crimes against humanity. With all her fearsome reputation, Patty Cannon died a coward. Patty Cannon's mysterious death was recorded in the newspapers of May 11, 1829, as a vague postscript, and her body was buried in an unmarked grave near the Georgetown jail. In 1961, the Dover Public Library received an unusual bequest. It was a scarlet hat box, and inside the hat box, nestled on a pillow of red velvet, there was a human skull over a hundred years old. Documents were also included in the hat box, and this is what they said. 
Patty Cannon's Skull. Just after the turn of the century, James Marsh, my uncle by marriage, was reading law. He took the position of deputy sheriff of Sussex County, while holding the job, the bodies of Patty Cannon and one or two others who had been buried in the jail yard of the Sussex jail were exhumed for reburial in a potter's field. The yard now is a parking lot. Somehow, while moving these bodies, Patty's skull came into the possession of James Marsh. About 1907, James Marsh contracted acute tuberculosis, and in an effort to save himself, moved to Denver, Colorado. At this time, he gave the skull to my father, Charles I. Joseph of Angola, Sussex County, for keeping. From that time until the late thirties, the skull hung on a nail in the rafter of my father's barn, by which time it had become quite a curiosity. To save it from damage or possible theft, he put it in a box and stored it in the attic of his home. At his death in 1946, I took possession of the skull and in 1961 put it on loan to the Dover Library. Alfred W. Joseph, Dover, Delaware, May 2nd, 1963. For decades, the skull of Patty Cannon sat in a scarlet hat box in a locked room of the Dover Public Library, only shown to the brave mortals who asked to see it. The skull of Patty Cannon was donated to the Smithsonian Museum of Washington, D.C. in 2010. They believe it is authentic. Patty Cannon's house was demolished soon after World War II, and only one photograph of it is known to survive. Today, an historical marker notes where her house was once nearby. Joe Johnson's tavern is long gone now and the town of Johnson's Crossroads, situated on the border between Delaware and Maryland, was eventually renamed Reliance. Cannon's Ferry, operated by one of Patty's relatives who had nothing to do with the murders, changed its name to the Woodland Ferry which is still operating daily in the 21st century. No matter what may be attempted to erase the terrible truth of the past, reminders of Patty Cannon's long reign of terror still haunt Delaware in the present. She is the demon woman's skull in the scarlet hat box. Patty Cannon is one of the first state's most horrifying real human monsters. Black lives still matter.
Next time we meet on Going Dark Theater, there will be a special Valentine's Day episode of the podcast I have planned for February, The Tale of the Waxwork Woman. If you'd like to help support the creepy work I do, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens, where I post the text of the Going Dark podcast episodes, chapters from my book in progress, and audio recordings of my horror, sto- of my horror stories and other works. If you do wish to subscribe to my Patreon, you can do so for as little as $1 a month if the spirit moves you. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater, where we seek to find the humanity behind the horror. Until our next midnight together, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now, going dark.